Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Peter Sanders. If you haven't heard that name or you don't know who he is, I almost guarantee you that you have seen his work. Peter is responsible for some of the most iconic images to come out of the Muslim world, whether they be images of the Kaaba or images of the Hajj or images of famous Mashaykh, all of these pictures, of course, linked in the episode notes. You can purchase his books, and I encourage everyone, I mean, every Muslim household shall have these books. These are some of the most famous images you have seen, and he is the man responsible for them. However, he has been practicing this craft since the 1960s, and in many ways he's an artist. Even before his journey to Islam, he was very famous for photographing people like Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan, The Doors, The Rolling Stones. So a large part of what you're about to hear is a little bit of a tour through the rock and roll world of the 1960s and 1970s. So if you get a little bit lost, make sure to check out the episode notes. I try to document all of the people that he's mentioned, all of the bands, you know, if these are things that you haven't heard of before. This is a tremendous uh, uh, conversation for me. As a matter of fact, when I reached out to him, he was a little hesitant because he's like, well, I'm not a scholar. And, you know, he thought that I was, I was into this scholarly thing and the conversation was going to be very ilmi and very academic. I said, no, no, I want, to, I want to learn from you, you know, what it's like to be an artist. What is it like to practice a craft? And we get into a lot of that. His insights are phenomenal. They're fantastic. I'm so honored that he graced me with his time and with his presence. He's such a gentle soul, a, a sweet human being. I'm so happy to present this uh, very intense conversation with you. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with none other than Peter Sanders. Assalamualaikum, Sidi, and welcome to the show. Walaikum salam. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's, a, it's a great honor uh, for me because your pictures have been a part of my life before I even knew that they were your pictures. Uh, <laughs> these images, uh, mashallah, some of the iconic images, particularly of, of the Kaaba, uh, which we'll get to, and most especially of, of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Habib, those images have been on my desktop in, in a picture folder, you know, ever since I've had a laptop. And wow. uh, it's a great honor for me to actually, you know, to, to sit down with you and, and to discuss some of this. Uh, so I have some questions written as, as sort of guidance. Okay. Uh, but we don't have to follow that. Of course, we'll see where the conversation takes us. But one, one thing I, I really do want to hear your thoughts on is I really want to understand from you the early 1970s. Uh, in, in many of your interviews uh, that I've, I've been preparing for this conversation, you've talked about how you went to India for some time. And I know from 
you know, other icons uh, like in America, people like Steve Jobs, you know, they were always into India and it was a big fad. Uh, and I want to know what was, <laughs> what was happening that caused but, a lot of these Westerners to, to want to go look uh, into the East and what was that experience like for you before we get to the Islam part? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've been sort of, I mean, you, you get to a certain point in life where you try to make sense of everything that's happened. And uh, I, was, I was forced to do that last year because uh, the Turks came to me and said they wanted to do an exhibition in, in Taksim Square in Istanbul. So I said, okay, what, you know, what do you want to do in the shade of the tree or, you know, Muslims in China? They said, no, we want to do a retrospective. And I said, but, you know, a retrospective includes all my music stuff from the 60s and my search my spiritual search through India, they said, yeah, that's what we want to do. So I had to put together a kind of exhibition that kind of made sense, linking oh, all wow. these things together. So it was quite an interesting project for me to do. I think the way I make sense of it is that, you know, I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, and the 50s and 60s, UK was, was recovering from, a, you know, World War II, and there was kind of a fog around, you know, a gray fog over the country. And there was a lot of anxiety and fear. Was there going to be a World War Three and all this kind of stuff? And within that context came the kind of hippie peace movement, you know, you know, peace and love and kind of color and music and art and all this stuff. And it was like a counter reaction to what was happening in the country and then there also was a kind of it was a kind of trying to shake off of a very materialistic kind of attitude that was settling in and and um, so I was part of that cultural revolution which is when I started taking pictures and so I uh, started taking pictures from about the mid 60s uh, up well I've carried on but you know, I got to I got to the end of the '60s, and I I I'd become kind of interested in spiritual things. I wasn't really looking for a religion. I was looking for some spiritual answers to my own personal uh, problems and issues. And um, you know, it was very fashionable in those days. The Beatles went to India, and so I started thinking about India. But it, it, the thought of India came after. I was introduced to a book called The Autobiography of a Yogi, yes. which is Steve, Steve Jobs' book. And in fact, it was distributed at his funeral. You know, that's how much he liked it. And I read that book and it just made a lot of sense to me. And I started meditation, meditating. You know, I was in a correspondence course with uh, Yogananda's ashram in in. Um, I think it was in California. I mean, he had one in India, but he'd set up one in, in California. And so, you know, I began this course to start meditating. And within a very short time, things started happening. And I realized after, you know, having read Yogananda's book that I needed a teacher. So that was really what sent me off to India, was really a search to find a teacher. And of course, in India, I was exposed to all the different kind of religions, not just Hinduism, but Buddhism and Sikhism, Islam, you know. And so I kind of had a crash course in all the religions while I was 
traveling around India on my quest and taking pictures. And so that's, you know, and I was in India for about seven months. And of course I had some uh, connection with Islam, not a lot, but one of the places I was staying, there was a mosque nearby. And then when I used to get up to meditate, I'd hear the Adhan from the nearby mosque. So, and there were, you know, there's uh, one story that I like to relate because it, it just shows how God in his wisdom just gives us the signs we need. So I was, I was um, on a station very early in the morning and I don't know if you've ever been to India, but it seems the whole nation is on the move, you know. And I was on this station, it was very crowded, there was loads of people with luggage and and suddenly within all this kind of apparent chaos, I saw an old lady roll out a prayer mat and do the prayer. Mm. And it was like God showed me this stillness within all this kind of movement. Mm. And I'd never seen it before. I didn't know what it was. And I went over there and there was a young man there and I said, what's this, what's this lady doing? And he said, oh, it's my grandmother. She's a Muslim she's doing the prayer. So I was kind of shown in a snapshot what the prayer was. And I didn't think a lot about it at the time, but it, it kind of went in, you know, this visual image. And so all these things happen and then they all kind of make sense at some point. So that was really India. And then I came back, I came back to the UK after being there for about seven months and, uh, some people I knew before had become Muslim musician friends of mine had become Muslim and then other friends I knew had got into kind of weird stuff you know drugs and magic and all this kind of stuff so I was being shown very clearly what what direction I needed to go in. Were you in India alone or was it a group of friends? Yes I went with a couple of friends who were going to visit their uh, Sikh master in northern uh, India and I went to see him just in case he was the teacher I was looking for. But I, I liked him and I respected him, but I, I knew he wasn't the person I'd come to see. So then I went off on my own and carried on my journey. So uh, by a series of, you know, subhanAllah, how, how Allah works, in you know, a series of circumstances, uh, my understanding is that you are, you know, you're introduced to this idea of tasawwuf, you know, yes. part of this big house of Islam and the heart of this house. and. And then it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, very shortly thereafter, you end up in Morocco. Yeah, and three weeks. Muhammad ibn Habib, like almost right, right away. Three weeks after saying the Shahada. I, oh I went, wow. Just before Ramadan. Three weeks before Ramadan, I said the Shahada. And three weeks later, I was in Magnus meeting Sidi Muhammad al-Habib, yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, I, it's. I think it's. I would really. I want to get into this. If you can, I, sometimes it's hard to articulate. But what was that meeting like? You know, it's very rare. Well, I don't say it's rare, but it, it's it's hard for for people to that are not familiar to yeah. understand that kind of impact. You know, to meet somebody of that magnitude, of that depth. Uh, you know, somebody who who you see and and reads you right away. You know, they, they know everything yeah. about you before you even say anything. I mean, what was that? And only three three weeks after saying your shahad, this is like a crash course. Yeah, but you have to remember I was in India and I was, you know, I was looking for a teacher and I ended up with a teacher. But I, you know, I met gurus and saints and all kinds of people. But all that didn't really prepare me for the meeting 
with Sidi Imam Nabi because, you know, people spoke about him as um, insan al-kamo, you know, the perfect human being. And I remember when I put my first foot on the steps up to his room that I realized I wasn't prepared for this meeting and I didn't know what to expect. Mm. Um, and, uh, and also I'd been asked to take pictures of him at the same time. So I was meeting him and I had to take pictures of him because someone asked me if I would take pictures and they must have agreed it with him because he was, I think he was kind of ready for me to do it. So, you know, and it's kind of funny, you know, Harun and I often talk about, you know, when we were doing the campaign for the, for the um, meetings with mountains and, you know, he said, you know, in a windowless room, you know, I had this meeting and uh, I had not been back to that room since 1970, uh, uh, you know, uh, seven, sorry, 71. Um, and um, when I went in there, the whole room was, I mean, it was longer than I ever expected. It was a long, thin room, and that's not how I remembered it in my mind at all. And it was covered, you know, whole one wall. In fact, two walls were, were windows. So I, like, I, why did I think it was a windowless room? And I've, like, thought about it so much because mm. I didn't use a flash when I took the picture. And all I can think was, because it was in Morocco, it's probably very bright, that room is high up. He probably had curtains drawn across those windows. And maybe there was one window at the end, which is where the light came onto him. Mm. That's the only way I can explain it, because I have no memory of that room other than just him sitting in that four poster bed. Mm. Uh, and it's kind of interesting what the mind, you know, in a certain situation, what the mind takes in and what it doesn't notice, you know. It's almost a, maybe we could even say it's sort of the self, self projection. Uh, when I met my sheikh for the first time, uh, it was a summer and I was so overwhelmed, like you are describing, I was so overwhelmed that the Friday, I actually walked out of the mosque with him and I forgot my sandals in the mosque. <laughs> and I started walking out on the scorching little street of Cairo barefoot. And I was so overwhelmed, I didn't realize it. And the sheikh said, oh, come, come with me, we'll go have lunch. And I was like, what is that feeling? And I looked down and went, oh my God. And, and I said, I'm so sorry, I'm so embarrassed. And then he, he looked at everyone, he laughed. He was like, oh, he came to us from America barefoot. But for, me, but for me, that was true. I mean, I was really barefoot. I was just so in an impoverished yeah. state. Uh, and I think that it, I was just projecting that. And sometimes yeah. maybe it was windowless from that point of view. Yeah. It, it's, it's, anyway, it's very interesting. And uh, I think about that meeting a lot because I've no, you know, I, I had no idea who he was. And I think as you get older, you have a kind of inkling, but you still don't know the vastness of that being that, you know, we met. And uh, yeah, it was a very powerful experience. Did you, how much time was, did you spend with him in that initial trip? So I ended up, you know, spending the whole of Ramadan in that Zawiya. And that was tough for me. It was really, it was not, it wasn't a comfortable situation, you know. It was uh, um, it was autumn in Morocco. It was a very bare, stark zawiya, 
Um, but the, so I was there and I didn't speak Arabic and he was coming down every day giving these famous discourses that he gave, uh, commentary on the Quran. And, you know, he was a hundred, some say he was a hundred years of, you know, old. And it was very powerful because even though I didn't know what he was saying, I could tell it was very, very powerful experience. And, you know, the place would be packed with Moroccans. They would just come in and fill the Zawiya up. And he would give these talks and he would have uh, Sidi Hamid, his Quran reciter, sitting next to him. And so he'd say, Zit, you know, and he'd recite this line from the Quran and then he'd give the tafsir. And sometimes people would just pass out. You'd, you know, you'd hear someone shout, Allah Akbar, and they'd actually fall unconscious. I mean, it was just the things he was talking about. Even though I didn't know what he was saying, I could just tell it was a very, very powerful experience. Yeah. This is the Zewe where he's currently buried, correct? Yeah, it's in Magnus, yeah. Okay, so I, I've actually been blessed. To, I visited that uh, once. I, have, I, have, I did not go upstairs. I think at the yeah. time his wife was still living there. But yeah, that's a that's a small remote place. I mean, to spend the whole month there. Yeah, yeah, and it was, and I never went out. You know, I never went out to the market or anything. The only time I ever left, if you know, if there wasn't enough food in the zawiya, then one of his fukara would come and invite the you know us to go and have break the fast with him. So I was in there that whole month, and then on on the Eid day. Um, all the fukras suddenly appeared all in white and they had these bowls of white milky rice, you know, rose, smelling of rose water and doing the Eid vicar and everything. And then after we did the prayer and everything, I went out and there's a garden, you know, the garden at the back of mm. where the Zawi is. I went into that garden and it was like, I remember it so strongly. The sky was so blue and the green and the colors. It was just like that whole month locked in that place was just really preparing me for the day of the Eid. Yeah, so that whole time. And then he used to come down sometimes. There was a few of us in the Zawiya and he used to come down. And I remember I could always feel him before he came into the room. You know, I'd feel his presence. You know? it, was, it was just incredible, yeah. Any any personal anecdotes you, you, you feel uh, comfortable sharing that happened between you and him or things that you've seen? Uh, in, um, the time that not a lot because I couldn't really converse with him, you know. So I was just in that kind of bubble and seeing him and watching how, you know, I, I remember we'd be sitting downstairs and then suddenly Fukura would like appear and you know they'd come like from the desert or something and then they'd be sitting there with us and then suddenly a message would come, they'd go up and see the sheikh. And I was sitting there, how does the sheikh know they're here? And you know, like, how, how does this thing operate, you know? It was just, I was just sitting watching it all going on, you know? And then it was all these amazing, for me, because I don't know if you've seen Meeting to Mountains, but there's him and then there's all the people that were around him, you know, the, yeah. the really poor, miskeen, Fukara, and then there were other, you know, uh, um, other people that had money and stuff. So it was a, it was a very wide range of different people who were his, you know, uh, followers, and I see all these different kinds of people, you know. And it was really was very interesting for me to see the whole picture, which must have been something like what it was like in Medina, because you know, 
you know, the Sahaba were very varied, some were very poor, some yeah. were very rich, you know, and it was just, I think, <coughs> encapsulated that whole picture. Actually, I'm glad you said that. One of the things that my teachers always say is, is whenever we're in a, in a gathering or um, students, you know, they would always impress upon us, you know, this is, this is how Islam was passed. This is what it was like that the Sahaba were with the Prophet, you know, peace be upon him. And, and it's not just the things that are said, but, you know, if you spend a lot of time with a sheikh, sometimes you end up looking like him, uh, yeah. dressing like him, talking like him, mannerisms, uh, things like that. And yeah. my sheikh told me one time, he said, you know, that's a, that's, that's a sign that this isnad, that these chains of transmission are true. That, that's what's being yeah. transmitted. You're, you're not just getting the book stuff. I mean, anybody can pick up a book and read it, but you're getting yeah. that stuff that's on the, on the inside, it's being passed. And, you know, I, I wish I had the words to, to articulate it, to describe it sometimes, which is why I'm so happy we're speaking, because I think you've, you've been able to capture some of it with these images. Sometimes it's just words are not enough. To exactly. Yeah, I'm, I've always been a very visual person, and I do kind of struggle with words quite a lot. Sometimes I, f I find them a bit... Um, failing in a way but images have always kind of spoken to me so, so i mean it, yeah no no please please continue no that's just what i'm saying and i and so i was just kind of watching what was going on what was the kind of adab the behavior of people coming into that situation and how the whole thing worked you know and and it was really uh i think what you see with someone like that is there is no cult of the personality. I mean, his personality is not there. I mean, you can see who he is, but there isn't a personality. Mm. You know, it's kind of been etched away somehow. It's just very transparent. And um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting process. And it was hard for me, you know, I just come from India and all of that. I just come from the whole 60s thing. And, uh, you know, and suddenly I found myself in a very difficult situation. You know, it was hard for me, the diet, the cold, you know, Morocco in the autumn is not, you know, those buildings are not very warm. So I struggled with cold and all these things. But I, I think about it now, it was a very blessed time for me, really. When, after that, when you when you returned, is, uh, was this? Were you still involved with the music business and, and rock and roll? No, I'd kind of, I'd kind of. Uh, once I kind of had accepted Islam, I kind of, I was already turning. I mean, India was really me turning my back on it a little bit because I saw so many people die, you know, in that business, and you know the the kind of effects of fame and how people react to fame and all that kind of stuff. It didn't, you know, I mean, I, I, I see it as a kind of, I've ex kind of explained it that they were the poets at the time. And, and there's a kind of cultural revolution. One tends to look towards the poets to try and make sense of it. But once I started looking at spiritual things, I was really on a different direction. And so I kind of, uh, I mean, I still had friends who were in that world, but, um, I was really, because because after that, after India and then going to Morocco, within um, uh, three months, I, I heard Sinecek was going to go and perform Hajj 
and I had no money, but I just thought if he's going to go and do Hajj, I want to I want to be there when he does Hajj. And uh, I didn't have any money or anything. And then um, one evening I, w I went to a, a gathering, and people someone came to me and said, "We've got seven tickets for Hajj and only six people," and they gave me a ticket. So so I. <laughs> I went. I went on Hajj expecting to meet Silimam Habib at the, at the Kaaba, and then um, the, some Moroccans came to us and told us that he died on the way, you know. And and it, yeah, and again, it was very interesting. I have to kind of explain something that when I was in India, and um, when I first arrived in India, I met a Sikh man, and he said to me, "You know, what are you doing?" And I said, "I've come to India to look for a." teacher and everything and he said oh interesting he said when you come back come and visit me so when I left India after being uh, at the ashram of uh, such as Baba for about six months I went and saw this guy and he said you know how was your trip and I said oh it's amazing I met this person he was incredible you know he did this and he did that and everything and the guy looked me straight in the face and he said you missed the point he didn't do anything, it was God doing it. Mm. And that would kind of shocked me. And then I realized, yeah, that's the truth. You know, I've kind of projected it all onto this person. Mm. So the same thing happened when I went to the Kaaba and I got the message that Sydney Mom Nabi even died on the way. It was like, oh yeah, I'm here for God, you know. And it kind of throws you back on yourself a little bit because you can. It's easy to kind of link onto these people because sure. they're so amazing, but you know they're transparent really, and they're they're saying it's not me. You know your journey is towards God. You know, so it kind of it reminded me again. Yeah. Mashallah. I mean, especially now, you know, with the culture of of images and social media and yeah popularity and influencers. It's starting to impact that understanding. You know, a lot of young people they think that the sheikh is is supposed to be like a celebrity superstar yeah, person, uh, which is another problem altogether. You know, unfortunately, but yeah, you know, the sheikh. Well, it's finding the balance. It's finding the balance, isn't it? Because we love we love our shayukh, we love the awliya. What's not to love about them? But you know, but they are saying it's not us. You know, it's. Your direction is, you know, the true ones. They they'll just deflect you, you know. So so you answered what was for me a very big conundrum because I'm trying to get this timeline. I'm like, you know, he was Muslim, he meets the Sheikh, and then he's in Hajj. Like, how's all that happen in less than one in year? one year? <laughs> so now now it makes sense, mashallah. <laughs> it's like a the crash picture of the of the Kaaba with the contrasting of the two sides. That was from that trip. That was from that. Hajj. No, that was later. Okay. So. Um, when I was doing Hajj, I wanted obviously to photograph it. And, you know, I was a Westerner and, you know, nobody wanted to give me permission, you know, and everyone I asked in Jeddah just said, no, not me, go and ask somebody else. And I spent like two weeks going from office to office, trying to find someone that would give me permission to take pictures. And I still remember today, I went into the office of this guy called Suleiman. It was a huge office, and I went in and I said, you know, I want to take, I want permission to take pictures of the Hajj in Mecca. Uh, and he said, no one else will give you permission, but I will give you permission, and I will give you a guard to to protect you. And so he did. I got permission, and uh, 
and, and so I got to photograph the Hajj, and that was in 71. Um, but um, I remember that that time when I when I entered the Haram and you go through those arches, I remember the Kaaba filling my vision. And I never knew at that time how to photograph it like that. But when I was working in the in the Haram in the 90s when they were extending the Haramain, uh, that's when I did that picture because I kept, that's the idea I came up with was to fill the whole frame of the oh, okay. image with it. Yeah, because because I kept thinking about how can I get it how I saw it the first time. Yeah, yeah, I remember the first time I saw the Kaaba. That's also one of those moments very hard to 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 talk about. I mean, I, yeah, it's it's not that big of a structure, you know, especially yeah. compared to everything else around it. But for some reason, when you're there, you're like, oh my God, this is it. This yeah, is but you have to remember, I was there in the seventies. In the seventies, everything was still low key. I mean, you still had the Sanan. Um, structure. The Ottoman complex. Yeah, and and so it was quite big. I mean, what? The, and I've thought about this a lot since all this development. You know, all these buildings and all this raising up of the haram. It psychologically makes the Kaaba look smaller. It's the same size it's always been, mm. but psychologically, as a viewer, it makes it look smaller. Which is why Sanan wouldn't make the. It's why he made the building like he did. He said it's disrespectful to make something higher than it. Yeah. Now, you, you know, you make tawaf and you're thinking about, oh, maybe afterwards we'll go here to get something to eat or, you know, we'll go there. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, it's, uh, it's another, another problem. I'm so blessed to have seen it when I did, you know. There was still Bilal's mosque there on, you know, and it's just... Wow, mashallah. Yeah. So my, my mother's family is, is Meccan. Oh, mashallah. And my mother's family, they used to be uh, responsible for distributing Zamzam to the pilgrims. Mashallah. So in my mother's family, I, I do hear stories that uh, you know, our house used to you know, open the, the balcony and the capas you know, there. I, mean, I don't know how true that is, but you know, th there is this sort of oral tradition that you, know, you used to make the sa'i, uh, you know, it's almost like in a marketplace. I mean, they're just, everything yeah. was right, yeah. right there. Same as Medina. I mean, the prophet, the market came right up to the prophet's mosque. You know, it was much more an integrated uh, part of the, the, you know, the city. Yeah. So st stepping out of Islam slightly, but and in, more into photography, I want to I yeah. want to read to you a quote of yours. I, I hope and correct me if this is wrong, but this is something that really caught my attention. Uh, you were, I think you were commenting on uh, French uh, photographer Cartier-Bresson. Cartier-Bresson, yeah. And then you say, when you begin, the self is very noisy and the mind is always chattering. You must allow the self to calm down to a point where it is just witnessing things, harmonize, harmonizing yourself to your surroundings. Yeah. Now, if I read that quote abstractly, that's almost like, a sheikh talking to his murid <laughs> about how you, you know, you do dhikr, but you know, this is about you talking about how you, you know, you do photography. I mean, it's very poetic and, and spiritual. I really want to unpack this idea of, of the self and calming yourself to be able to capture an image. Yeah. Well, I've kind of thought about this a lot, you know, and, um, you know, um, It's interesting for me that art, a lot of art 
250 years, 300 years ago was about glorifying God. Mm. And now we find ourselves at a time where a lot of art is about glorifying the artist. It's all about the artist, really. It's uh, mm. a great art comes from a point where the self is transparent because, you know, God, you know, Al-Muzamilu, one of his names, which I often quote in the workshops we do, you know, the perfect creator of the perfect form and, you know, all these uh, words that uh, describe that aspect of God. So I had a very interesting conversation with a scholar once. I said to him, I think all photographers, because when I used to travel, people would say to me, what, you know, what do you do? And I would say, Muzami, you know, uh, Musawir. Sorry, yeah, not Muzamil, sorry, I mean, I'm Musawir. Um, I said, I would say Musawir, but that's not true, actually. I mean, it, truthfully, you'd say Abdul Musawir or something. Mm. So I said to him, I think all photographers should be called Abdul Musawir. And, mm. um, <laughs> and he... His reply was not what I expected at all. And he said, yes, and also the people that look at the pictures could be called Abdul al-Musawir. Mm. So it's not just the person who's creating the images, but this person who's also looking at them and enjoying them. Because mm. you're, you're enjoying that aspect of God, mm. which was a really interesting you know, thing. It was really gave me a lot to think about, actually. So I've always kind of, you know, and having done meditation, you become aware of, you know, that process. The moment you sit down to do, to remember God, then all these thoughts come and you have all these things distracting you. But, you know, the great teachers of this just say, well, you just, it's just like chattering. You just have to let it, it's like clouds passing through you. Just don't, don't attach yourself to it. And the more you just let it drift past and just concentrate on what you're doing. So I've, I've kind of been able to train myself to do that. And um, I had, once I was in, I was in um, the Tawaf in Mecca doing pictures of the, um, I think it was the day they were changing the Kiswa. I think it was the day of Arafat. And I was, and my camera jammed. I was on the edge of the uh, Tawaf. And, you know, it's very busy in there. And I, and the, I had to drop to my knees and it's a very complicated procedure because you have to put a screwdriver in the back of the mm. camera and uh, unlock this spring. And I had to just like really focus myself because if I thought about where I was and worrying about people tripping over me or carrying all this expensive equipment, I just was able to just do it, you know, and, and that's happened to me a few times, you know. Um, uh, it's, so it's funny. Is it, is it a process? Is it fair to say that art, uh, good art is really about almost erasing the self so, so something else can come through? I, I, think, I, I think so. I, mean, I think it's the same with music or any art form. The more that you erase the self, the more pure your art will be, you know, and I mean, there's stories about Zen monks that, you know, meditate for hours and then they pick up the calligraphy pen and just one, you know, in one stroke or a couple of strokes, they'll do what's a masterpiece, you know. And I think there are musicians in the Arabic world, Muslim world would do dhikr before they start playing Samar and things. So, I mean, it is a tradition. Um, 
I was reading uh, over the Ramadan, I was trying to struggle with, you know, trying to how, how to define art. Uh, and I, I really, I came upon, upon uh, uh, one of the definitions of art is Tolstoy's definition of art, which is, you know, to communicate feeling. Yeah. And I like that because all the other definitions were too philosophical and too, you know, mumbo jumbo. It was, I couldn't get it. But, Communicate, feel, I got that. And then I started thinking, you know, anytime uh, I hear, I would hear a lesson or I would be in the presence of a, of a saintly person and I really, you know, felt something, they would always say, you know, what comes from the heart goes, goes to the heart. Mm. And, and, and that's sort of why I'm interested in this concept and that quote of yours, because it's almost, it's, you know, I think that we're saying the same thing, but just from two, two sides. Exactly, yeah. But if you erase the nafs, you know, if you erase it yourself, uh, then you, what, the, the truth will just sort of will manifest. And when I started thinking about that even more, I was like, well, well, how would we define the prophet, you know, peace be upon him? I mean, that's just, you know, pure art. Seven, yeah. All this, you know, divine light, you know, coming out to people. So I started to think about, can we think about Islam as, as a system that, that makes us artists? You know, it produces, it's, an, it's, an, it's a form of art itself, the practice of Islam. So I've just been very interested. I don't know where I'm going with these thoughts, but I'm just very interested. No, no, I think, I, I mean, I've often thought about, you know, if you think about, the Sahaba, and we can't imagine what they were like, but I imagine because they were such beautiful people and noble people, that whatever they possessed, even though they probably possessed very little, I'm sure it was beautiful, you know, because they were beautiful. Mm. And there is a kind of, I do sense a kind of disconnect. Um, and I see in our community, you know, we, we aspire to one thing, but then we live very differently. And really, you know, if we're aspiring to be beautiful inside, then it should be expressed outwardly as well. And uh, I, I really, I think that, um, I was going to say one thing, you know, I, I remember reading uh, an interview with Dylan and they asked him, how, you know, in the 60s, how did you write all these, you know, songs like Masters of, Masters of War and, you know, Gates of Eden, all these incredible songs. And he said they were just like, they were just like clouds passing through. And I just grabbed them and poured them down. Hmm. And, and it was very much, it didn't come from him. He recognized it was like, there's a kind of inspiration that he was able to sort of tap into. And I think that's the same thing we're talking about. Hmm. You mean, look at the work of Leonardo da Vinci or, you know, any great master, they tapped into something very on a very high level. Sure. So therefore, their self must have been subdued enough to enable that to happen. So did you find, did you find in Tasawwuf that sort of idea? I mean, did it speak to you more because you are an artist and sort of you, you are always grappling with trying to subdue yourself so that the art can come? Yeah, through? I think it made sense to me. You know, I was somebody who kind of worried a lot, you know, um, not when I was younger, but when as I got older and um, 
kind of, you know, I'd, some days I'd be anxious, not really know why I was anxious. So I was keen to kind of calm that down, whatever that was. And I think once you embark on a spiritual journey, you start to learn tips or you learn from your teachers, you know, tools that you can work, you know, work against these things that are, that you need to remove because they can be a problem for you if you're, if they're allowed to grow, you know. So, I mean, I think the two, Shakramsa said to me one thing um, some time ago, he said there was, there was a great, I don't know the name of the person, he said there was a great scholar and philosopher who said that um, whatever you choose to do in life, whether you're a carpenter or a doctor, anything, whatever trade you decide to do, if you do it to the best of your ability, it will become like a spiritual path for you. And you will, know, you will get to know everything you need to know about yourself. And that always kind of rang true with me because that's kind of, you know, I was somebody who's not very patient, you know, and I can, and I can sit for hours waiting to take a picture, you know, because, you know, that's what I'm engaged in. And through that process, I'm being taught to be patient. So I think, I think it is with whatever you do, whether you're a writer or anything you're passionate about. So you, you became Muslim also at a very interesting time for the Muslim world. Uh, yeah. Talk a little bit about the West, but you know, in the 70s and, and early 80s, a lot of uh, interesting things were happening in, in the heartland of the Muslim world. Yes. You're sort of reflecting back, what kind of differences do you see between Muslims then, you know, like the 70s, 60s, 70s and, and Muslims today? I mean, just sort of like a macro kind of commentary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did kind of, you know, from from becoming a Muslim and going to Morocco and then Saudi Arabia and then traveling, just nonstop traveling. You know, I've been doing a process to kind of do a timeline, you know, and I just got all my old passports out and I just wrote down dates, trips and everything. And it's just like, when I look at it, I'm going, wow, this is ridiculous. I mean, there's trips that I did. I don't even know why I did them. You know, there's just so many. And, um, but I remember thinking at some point round about the year 2000, it was like God picked me up in a kind of typhoon and blew me around the world. And I got to sort of document all these sort of societies which are sort of slowly disappearing. You know, I went to Mauritania and Mali and Senegal and Sudan, traveled everywhere in Sudan and everywhere, you know, and I got to see traditional Islam before it completely disappeared. Now it's very hard to find those kind of places now. And I thought, what, you know, why, why did that happen? I think I was just like, it was the last chance to capture the kind of embers of what had been there for a very long time. And then of course, you know, 9-11 happened and that was a big shift you know, big gear shift and everything. So I, it, it's kind of, yeah, I've been very fortunate enough to see all this stuff. And now I'm kind of, maybe it was a kind of slightly romantic, I was kind of, I really was, wanted to document a kind of more romantic Islam, you know, mm. and that's what I, more of a spiritual side of it. That's what I was trying to show really. And uh, I think I was very fortunate to to go and, have access to all the places that I did, you know. 
And but it's a different it's a different picture now. It's, it, that's what I'm interested. So you think it's harder, it, it, you know, for a younger person, it would be harder to find that. Yeah, because it's a different world out there. I mean, where where is it in the world where they don't have mobile phones? I mean, there are odd places, but I mean, it's not. You know, I mean, it's it's very different. Mm. You know, to go to somewhere like Hadramaut, well, not not, not well, Hadramaut is one place, but also like Lamu, to meet children that have never seen television and never seen the stuff that our kids see on television nowadays. You know, you can see in their faces a certain purity. You know, kids are very pure and they're bombarded with a lot of stuff at a very early age now. Mm. And it's a pity. You know, it's so precious what children are born with. Well, I have to say that the, your, your recent project, Meeting with Mountains, I mean, I couldn't bring the book with me on my trip because <laughs> it's just so big, but it's a fantastic, you know, uh, piece and... I just love looking at, I just love looking at those pictures. Even if I don't read the text, just, you know, looking at those pictures and imagining, you know, that romantic Islam that you talk about. And as I said in the beginning, I mean, those, many of those images I had seen before, some of many of them I have not, but those, I, mean, I grew up as a, as a young, you know, late teenage, teenager, early twenties. Those were the images that I wanted to see in the world. That's the Islam I wanted to find. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there's a danger in that because sometimes you get attached to images and, and a certain, you project a certain thing. But you know, Alhamdulillah, I also feel blessed that I found that. I, mean, I feel that I found that and attached myself to it, and it's it's life, you know, changing. And I'm so glad that we have record. And I do know uh, uh, Harun, who, who I also interviewed uh, for this uh, podcast. He also told me that you you you're working on a new project. Yeah, exemplars for our time, yeah. There was always, an, my idea with me, um, meetings with mountains was always that uh, at the end of the book, because, I'm, you know, I'm not really a writer, and I, the hardest, taking the pictures was the easiest part of it, but writing the text for it, partly because um, I do feel that as Muslims, we tend to talk in our own language, you know, we talk in Arabic terms, and, and it's a kind of, for someone outside of that world, they do feel they're kind of kept out of it. And I really wanted this book to be accessible. So I had, I'd spend a lot of time trying to find a language that could describe these things without resorting to just kind of Arab, Arabic term, terminology. Um, and that was very important for me. And then I wanted to speak from my own experience, but I always wanted there to be at the back of the book, some longer pieces on some of the greater mountains because you know, what I described was just, you know, a, time, a moment in time when I met them and what happened. But some of them have had incredible lives. So the idea was to get some of our uh, current scholars to write pieces about them. But then when I came to put the book together, it was already so, so big and I'd cut out quite a lot of it. And it was already like 400 pages. And I just we just decided it would just be another add-on and it wouldn't really help the book. It didn't. So we, I'd always in my mind thought I wanted to do that as a separate project mm. where I wouldn't be writing, but we'd find other people who'd spent time with these people who could tell the story in more detail. So that's, so that's what we're doing with Exemplars. I'm really excited about it because it's... Uh, when, when do you anticipate that to sort of roll out? Um, 
it's really kind of like a year project and because of what's been happening we're a little bit slow getting up started with it but we've 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 into about four of the issues i think it'll be i hope next at least next summer inshallah we'll have you know the first few issues ready um uh, it, it this is much more challenging visually because um there are people that I photographed, like Sheikh Marabat al-Hajj or Siman Abi, but I photographed them at the end of their lives. And of course, you know, I was, I, I was asking the son of Sheikh Marabat al-Hajj, you know, are there any other pictures of your father, you know, because I have just pictures of him. And he said, you, you're the only one, you have, you're the only one who ever photographed him. There was nothing before. And so, you know, these are going to be much more challenging to find images to represent their life, you know. And uh, so it's, we're doing a lot of research, but we're finding stuff, alhamdulillah. So, uh, yeah, well, I, look, I look forward to that, look forward to that. One of the things I read, this is just, I mean, I'm, this is a little bit of jumping around, but to go back way to the beginning. Yeah. That caught my attention is that you, this was probably back in the rock and roll days but that you were very interested in, in gypsies and, and migrant communities. And you spent, it uh, sounds like quite a bit of time actually traveling, photographing them. Is yeah. that accurate? Not a huge amount of time. I, I used, when I was photographing the, what I can call the rock and roll period, mm. my other interests, my own interests were like, nomadic people or tramps so i did a whole project on street tramps in 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 london you know i would just find them and get their permission to photograph them and then you know i then i started looking at gypsies i was interested in gypsies i went to i went to ireland and traveled around for a few days finding gypsies and getting their permission to photograph them. so these were always like projects that i um you know um, took on myself um and so i kind of um, it was nice doing that exhibition, so I was able to include some of those pictures in the in the in the exhibition in Turkey last year. Yeah. Do you have any plans uh, to to publish, you know, a collection of those? Yeah, I mean, they the, the, the Turks did um, the Turks did a, they, it was meant to be just a brochure for the for the exhibition, but they ended up producing a really nice book. I mean, this is someone has hand bound this for me, so but. It's got, you know, I really love it because it's got all these incredible pictures from the 60s and uh, and then it's got my own comments and stuff. So it just kind of works its way through and then... Um, is, there, see, is there a way to, to get a copy of that? Yeah, there's like, so they only did a very short run of it. It, it was, they were meant to print like 2000 or something and it was just the point when uh, things were changing in... Turkey and you know they lost they lost you know the people that were governing at that time got kind of you know it was a change of guard and so suddenly they had no money and so so they ended up I ended up like with about a hundred copies of this so I have a few I think I have about 70 left and I keep we keep talking about we're going to put it on the website so people can buy them because it's really a limited edition book I hope inshallah I can build on it I'd like to do it as a as a serious book at some point and add even more stuff to it, but okay. Yeah, I, mean, I have a few copies of it. No, yeah. Please keep my name in mind. I mean, I'm definitely I'm, I'm happy to purchase one. The yeah, reason yeah. my attention is that when I went to the Hajar, I've only been able to go once, 
um, there were many gypsies that sort of were like appeared out of nowhere. And that was the first time, I mean, I've always kind of had an idea, but I became fascinated with them since that experience. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, nomads. So that's why I'm interested. <laughs> Nomad, I mean, nomads, are, you know, it's always been part of our culture, you know. I mean, that, you know, going to Twemere and seeing Sheikh Marabit al-Hajj just living in tents and small mud buildings and then even other people who are really remote we went to um, another person who there were just like three black tents that was it in the middle of nowhere I mean it's just it's kind of it's kind of very sobering and uh, you know as a westerner you think oh I got to get out of here and then once you accept your destiny it's really fascinating you know just to see how they live yeah I, I went to Tuamrat once um, and we, we spent the night, I think two days and one night. And that's, that's rough, rough living. That's it's not, very, not very romantic. It's tough. I remember we always laugh about it. Sheikh Hamza and I were like, we was, you know, we, we used to healthy food and stuff and him and I were going, oh, I need some orange juice or something. And, and you know, we were like, Dreaming, dreaming of fresh glasses of <laughs> fresh orange juice. Yeah. And I said, Shakamza, I've got a vitamin C tablet in my, you know, in my, you know, one of these effervescent tablets. And we broke it in half and it was like, <laughs> yeah. I, just, I remember when we, when we left to Amrat and then we flew out of Nouakchott uh, to Morocco. The first thing I did when I got to Morocco was like, I need a, I need a burger, fries, <laughs> and a Coke. I just... It's the kind of like this reaction, which is not, I can't, it's very tough. It's very tough. Yeah, it's very, it's very hard. And, uh, but it's good, you know, it's good for us to see how these people are very strong, you know, incredibly strong. Yeah, absolutely. CD, you talk about your retirement and you say that the ultimate. No, no, I'm not retiring. I, I mean, later years. Well, or in later years, you say that yeah. the ultimate setup for someone like you is to have an apartment outside of Alhambra and to have a free pass to be able to go inside daily. To go into where? Alhambra. Oh, in, in, oh Alhambra, yeah, yeah, when we do the workshops, yeah, 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 yeah. So can you, can you elaborate? So I was still thinking about retirement. Someone said photographers never retire, they just go out of focus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, the Alhambra is one of the most beautiful places to photograph, you know, and I've been going there since the 70s. And uh, now it's like you have to book up months in advance. But with the last few years before the pandemic, we used to take students and do a workshop uh, there. So we would uh, we rent a hotel very close to the Alhambra. And I do master classes in the morning and then in the afternoon we take the students in and they have kind of free range of the area to take pictures and I'm there to kind of just watch them and, you know, be on hand. And I, it's just such a beautiful place, you know, it's just, you know, this is, and they say that's a fragment of what, you know, the Muslims created. Yeah, such I mean, I've, I've been place. blessed to, to go twice. And uh, it's, again, one of those things very hard for me to talk about yeah it's so overwhelming it's just it hits all of your senses yeah uh we went one time i think it was in late in spring and we it was the first time i i walked in it was raining 
and then the rain subsided and then the clouds moved and then the sun came up and I was like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yeah. And it's, it's like paradise. I mean, I can't imagine anything. I don't think I've seen anything more beautiful. It's just yeah. it's so complicated. It's just so intricate yeah. and so beautiful. And I watched these students just transform, you know, just being in that environment and just photographing it and really getting to see it for what it is and the beauty and stuff. It, it really affects people. So that's the ultimate, uh, that's the, uh, the, the, the package that we're looking for, CD, to a, a flat right across the street and a free pass. Well, that'd be nice. I mean, always my, one of my other ones was to be on a, on a beautiful island somewhere and run a juice bar or something. <laughs> we have a joke in my house that, you know, we, I never do holidays. Like, I don't go anywhere unless I can go and take pictures there. Mm. And my family get fed up because they like to just have holidays. Yeah. So I said, boy, you know, I've never been to the, like, the Seychelles or the Maldives or Mauritius. So like, why don't we plan a trip there? I can take some pictures and then they can all have a holiday. Yeah. I'm sure there will be beautiful pictures. <laughs> See, another quote of yours that, that caught my attention. Yeah. You said, I think the silent majority, including myself, have to discover what real Islam is. And above all, yeah. we have to be Islam. Yeah. And there's I, more I, comments uh, related to your immigration book, which is also another you know, tremendous feat. But that, that really struck me. We have to be Islam. Yeah, because, you know, we can't talk about Islam is peace. You know, there was a project where some guys were doing uh, in London where they wanted, you know, they wanted to do all these signs on the sides of buses mm. saying, you know, Islam is peace. And I was going, they're blowing, they're exploding bombs in London. No one's going to take that serious. We need to be peaceful human beings. We need to be it. You can't, I mean, it's the thing that you see about the Aulia and the Shayuk is they are that thing. They don't say, they don't say it. They just are it. Mm. And they are, and you see it and you feel it in them, you know, and it's, it's kind of that disconnect, which a lot of people have in modern society. They might aspire to something, but their life is something else. We're not integrated as human beings. So, I, you know, I kind of, I've always been kind of concerned. Not, I don't kind of tell everybody that I'm a Muslim. I try to keep it quiet. It's a bit difficult because, you know, I've kind of been adopted by the Muslim community. But I like people to discover that later not that's not what i come out as you know it, no no one does that in any other religion if you think of richard gear you don't think richard gear is a buddhist i mean that's a bible he's an actor who happens to be a buddhist and i think you know wearing this stuff on you know as some of us some of our community do it's a bit of a problem you know and I know their shayuk have said to their students, you shouldn't wear robes and turbans. It does you a disfavor. Because hmm. I always feel like as Muslims, we're ambassadors for our religion, you know, and we need to be good ambassadors if we are going to be ambassadors for the, for which is a very beautiful religion. And I still feel that we don't really know what it, what, what it was at that time, what it was like. I think we have an idea of it, but I think, we don't really know. I mean, yeah, I think when you're with Shayuk and the Aulia, you get an inkling of what it 
what it's like because you see how they are with other people. But I think, you know, generally as a community, we've kind of, like for instance, take the prayer. I think if we knew how the early people prayed, every time we did the prayer, we would be transformed. Because mm. it isn't just these, it's got yoga in it and she, um, Qigong in it and everything. If you ever practice any of those other things, you'll say, oh, that's like Qigong, that position in the prayer, you know, that standing, you know, there's just like all those things because it's an ancient wisdom. But we, we don't know, we don't, you know, when, when Siddhi Mom Habib used to pray when he used to go into Sajda, I remember thinking it's like a cloud, you know, his banus would come down like a cloud. You know, when you go in the mosque, some people are going to Sajdar, it's like the whole building shakes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just to see them, how they pray and how they make dua and all these things. It's a real teaching. All of these decades, you know, being in all of these Muslim countries with all of these people, what, what, what for you helped you try to keep that message clear for yourself, you know, I need to be Islam, rather than sort of getting, you know, caught up in this whirlwind of, you know, yeah. and, you know slogan. Well, I think, I think I was lucky because I traveled a lot and then each place I would go to, I would see similar things. Okay, this is Morocco, but this is China. The people themselves are different in nature, but the aspects of hospitality and generosity and these are the things you then can decipher what are the actual real true characteristics of Islam rather than the cultural aspects, which is why I love the Chinese so much because they are, they are Muslims, but they are really Chinese. They haven't got rid of their Chinese culture. That, that, so that's the next project I'm doing on, which I've, Alhamdulillah, I mean, Meetings of Mountains took me 50 years <laughs> to do. I've done my next book, Muslims in China, and basically I put the thing together in six weeks during lockdown. So we're just, I'm just working on the text now with an editor. Oh, that's a lot of greats, greats. It's called Heaven and Earth and the 10,000 Things. Nice, nice. Yeah. Yeah, China. I mean, Sidi Harun gave that title. I said, as soon as I heard it, I said, yeah, that's it. It's beautiful. He has a way with words. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, the Uyghurs is a very fascinating uh, community. And, you know, this is a community... But not just the Uyghurs. the first century. But not just the Uyghurs. I mean, the, the thing is, is kind of, there is an idea that they, you know, all the Muslims are Uyghurs. I mean, the Chinese Muslims are right across from one end to the other. And I traveled from Beijing to Kashgar. I was lucky to go before all this current problem. So I went right into Xinjiang and all those areas, Hami and Turpan and Kashgar and everything. And I met them all and photographed them. There, but also the the we, which are the pure Chinese Muslims, who are different in nature than the Uyghurs, but they're just as are amazing, really. Um, when you see the pictures, you're. I'm hoping that the the book will do. You know, because I haven't been there since this current situation, and I was again lucky to go in before that happened. Um, and I did. I did four trips. Um, the first one in the year 2000. I think the last one was. 2015 or something, um, or 13, I can't remember. But anyway, you know, I, it, it's, it's something that really excites me because I wanted to go and meet the Chinese and the Russian Muslims from 
when I first became a Muslim. There's something there that's really fascinating. And then when you hear the story of how Islam went to these places and how they connected, because doing this book, I kept thinking, why was this, there this synergy between them? Because the, the Chinese at that time were Confucian and Taoist. Mm. But the Muslims at that time were very sophisticated. It was just after the time of the Prophet Islam, you know, as the sons of Sahaba or something. So there was this incredible synergy. They talked about the way of the pure and, you know, the, the Confucian monks could understand that. You know, there was, they weren't trying to dominate them with the culture. They were just talking about the truth. And there was this incredible synergy. And they were so intelligent, those early Arab travelers. They just built their mosques like the, you know, Taoist and Confucian temples. Mm. So people didn't think it was an alien culture. So there was this incredible synergy. I mean, to me, it's just such an amazing thing, you know, and I re I'm really fascinated by it. Well, maybe after COVID, CD, you can take us on a field trip. I would love to to do what you, those cities that you just said. That's that's a part of the world, unfortunately, I've never been to. Yeah. Well, we can't go there now. It's very difficult. It's really sad, you know. I'm just hoping the book will just say, look, you can't demonize a whole group of people. You know, they say that the extremists got into Western China and stirred things up because, you know, the Western part of China always wanted autonomy and the government would never give it to them. So I think they went and stirred things up, which was, you know, part of the story, but um, it's it'd be very difficult to go in this until it gets resolved somehow. Inshallah, they're such beautiful people, really. I met incredible people. Beautiful. Okay, I can't wait for this book to come out. It sounds like it might be sooner than the... I hope so, yeah. I'm, I'm work, the text is always a bit of a slow process because I'm working with uh, uh, an editor mine who's very busy but uh, we we talk we meet every week and we, we're going through it the whole thing so yeah and uh, I don't know if you know um, uh, Dr. Marata wrote the forward for it so I'm very excited about that hey, wow, nice. yeah yeah so I'm really honored actually that she did it so I did that wow that's yeah that's uh, that's tremendous I mean those books are the I started with Sayyid Hussein Nostr at uh, in university Ashallah. for five years so household names and their books and yeah, I was always inspired by her stuff, really. I just, uh, I would have liked to have photographed her. I would have stuck her in meetings with mountains if I could, but I never, I've still, we've knew, still never met. I mean, we just corresponded and I asked her and she very kindly wrote this forward for it. So I'm, I'm really quite honored, you know. Where is she currently based? I think she's in, she's in Wash, uh, no, not Washington. She did tell me. I'll look it up because she sent she said she sent me on the on the Is it New York? Uh no, I don't think it is. Okay. Give me a minute, I can tell you, but um keep on talking to me and I'll find it. I'll find her forward because it's well, so, I mean that's something that I, I came across in my research uh in preparation, uh, you know, some of the, the photography that you've done for Muslims in China. I did not realize that it's advanced so much to its own project. So I'm I'm very happy. You know, as you know in the West. Unfortunately, one of the problems we have is people think that Arabs, you know, Muslims are Arabs and Arabs are Muslims and sort of... Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and as an Arab, you know, it's easy to have that bias as well because that's sort of where my mind is occupied. 
when I went to Japan uh, for the first time and I met Muslims in Japan, that was really my first exposure to Islam in Asia. And wow, what a tremendous uh, difference than all of the East-West conflict that I'm used to. And so I can imagine, you know, I can imagine Islamic discourse with Buddhism and with, with Confucian thought and Taoist thought, it must be tremendous because these are very naturally compatible traditions. I mean, yeah. I, I went to Japan as well. That was one of my things I did. I really wanted to go and meet the Muslims there and I did a trip there. Um, I didn't spend enough time there. I would, uh, and and it's since I've been there, um, I'm trying to think when that was. It's early, early 2000, I think. Um, it's changed. It's grown a lot, a lot there. But yeah, I I loved going to Japan. Really, it was fascinating for me, um, and uh, partly because I've you know Westerners Westerners are very drawn to Buddhism and, and and Zen Buddhism, and I think there's a certain clarity in it that appeals to the to the Western mind. You know, so um, I was really interested to see how Japanese interpreted uh, Islam for themselves. Well, I have a very, some very good contacts in Japan, if you're interested in pursuing Yeah, that. no, I would love to go again. It's, it's a, another favorite place. So, I, mean, I fell in love with, with Japan. When I went and I, I told everyone, I said, Look, I am a Japanese Muslim, okay? I just don't know how to speak Japanese yet, but I'm a Japanese Muslim. I, it feels just so natural being there. It's uh, tremendous. Did you go to Kyoto? I went to Kyoto, yes. Yeah. So uh, did, did you meet Fawad Honda? No. Oh, you need to know about him. He's a he's a Japanese uh, calligrapher, but okay. he his calligraphy is in the style of Japanese painting with mountains and oceans and Fuad Hoshi Honda. His name is. Okay. I went to meet him. That was one of my big things. We found out we had the same birthday. He used to be a Zen Zen Buddhist, and then he discovered uh, Islam and Arabic, and uh, he became a Muslim. Mashallah. Okay. Yeah, he's amazing. I, will, uh, I would like to be in contact with him. Yeah, you'd love his work. It's beautiful. I mean, talk about art. Kyoto is a work of art. It is. I tell everyone, go to Kyoto. It's so beautiful, that city. It is. Uh, Sachiko Murata is in Mount Sinai in New York. Um, okay. 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 Great. Well, Sidi, I don't want to take up more of your time. I mean, we can. It's fine. Talk. I'm fine. I'm, you know, it's lockdown. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> well, so if if I can, maybe just one sort of a couple of questions that are batched together. If we can wrap yeah. Up, is um, just to go back to rock and roll. Yes. Uh, everything goes back to rock and roll. Everything goes back to rock and roll, <laughs> and you know, everything in rock and roll goes back to Dylan and the Beatles, which is what I wanted to ask you. I mean, just for purely selfish reasons, did you have any yeah. exposure, interactions with, with Bob Dylan, uh, with the Beatles at that time? Um, work as a photographer? You know, all these guys were, were heroes of mine, which is partly why, you know, I got into doing it. The thing was, I was very shy in those days. And the Beatles were already very famous when I started doing photography. And so, uh, I kind of got access to nearly everybody else, but they were already too famous. Um, but in those days, if you went to the right places, you know, they were sitting, if you went to the right clubs and stuff, you'd see them sitting over there and there was a lot of nodding and stuff went on, you know. So we, we were all part of one kind of um, 
how would you say one kind of tribe or something mm. so it was it was kind of a great time um to have been around dylan was always one of my heroes but i mean i uh i didn't really go to america in in those days i didn't go to america till in the 70s um and so um the only time that I did photograph him was after his famous motorcycle accident. He decided to appear at the Isle of Wight. Um, in, uh, and that's when he did that famous with the band in the white suit and everything. And I photographed him then. So at least I did get to photograph him, yeah. Yeah, you know, something about, about those songs, uh, those protest songs and you know, the times they are changing, the answers flowing in the way. I mean, that's yeah. it's still, when I listen to it, it really strikes a chord. Absolutely. Yeah, and, um, you know, he says that they were, you know, for a particular time, but I mean, they were incredible. I mean, incredible poetry and songs and very visual, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if his voice had been all very different, it would have clouded, you wouldn't have actually just been able to hear what he would, you know, his lyrics, they just conjure up these visual things, you know, it's just amazing. So did you also know Cat Stevens at that time? Um, I knew, I knew about Cat, the trouble was in the 60s, there was so much music around that I was aware of him, but I wasn't that kind of connected to him. I really kind of connected to him later, mm. and we connect, connected as... Muslims and we traveled together, we went to Sudan together and stuff. So I did things with him and I've got to know him. And he's a very sincere guy, I have a huge respect for him. Uh, I think it was just that the music period was a very encapsulated time for me. And I suddenly had access to all, a lot of people, you know, I was with the Doors for a week. And, you know, it's just kind of ridiculous, you know, that, that I did that. I'm kind of rediscovering all that stuff. I mean, it's kind of funny, someone, and I've been very, not, I've been a bit careless with all that stuff, you know, and I've had kind of stuff take, stolen from me and stuff. But someone sent me some contacts the other day and said, are these yours? And I looked at them and I said, they're, yeah. And I realized that I did, I photographed David Bowie at some point and I thought I didn't have pictures of him, yeah. So I'm on, I'm on the trail to try and retract down. Any, any Hendrix stories? Yeah, well, I mean, Hendrix is very important because um, I wanted to go to India and I didn't have the money. And I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll wait till I get the money. And I was asked if I wanted to go on tour with the Rolling Stones. And in Europe, they were going on tour for three months. And I thought about it. I mean, Brian Jones had just died and they were quite heavy into drugs at that time. And I thought, I'm not sure I want to be locked up in hotel rooms because, you know, those days you just kind of live with the guys and just hang out with them. And I just thought, I'm not sure I want to, you know, put myself in that situation. I, you know, I was going through this change of wanting to go on a spiritual path. So I kind of turned it down. And I had photographed them before anyway. And then um, I got a message that Jimi Hendrix was playing at the Isle of Wight. And so... I thought, oh, okay, I've never really photographed Jimmy, I'll go down. So I went, I went to the Isle of Wight and he did this incredible concert and I photographed it. And two weeks later, he died. So I had some of the last pictures of him performing and I knew the guys that ran uh, his label, 
and I showed them the pictures and they just said, we'll buy them from you. So I, you know, stupid, stupidly, or not stupidly, I wanted, you know, I, I sold them all the color stuff and the black and white stuff and got the money I needed to go to India. What was nice was that sometime later, I discovered like a couple of strips of the black and white stuff from that concert that somehow I'd forgotten about and given them or something. I didn't, I didn't do it intentionally, but so I, you know, I do have some pictures of, of Jimmy and the other one. I mean, that's, yeah, that's uh, to be a fly on the wall uh, with those, uh, or to, you know, those concerts. Or the, I mean, I think that that, those, that decade still is impacting us today. Yeah. Artistically and those messages. And, uh, very often, I mean, even though uh, All Along the Watchtower is a, is a Dylan song, but you know, yeah. Hendrix, you know, Hendrix made it famous. Everybody covers that song. Even till today, everyone's got to cover yeah, yeah. No, Hendrix's version is very different, it's, and it's, it's it's brilliant. You know, I mean, he was. I had fortune to meet him. You know, I was staying in Montague Square with a friend of mine, and he said to me, "Do you want to go and meet Hendrix? Go and have a cup of tea with him." And I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah, he's just living over the road, in um, Ringo Starr's flat or something." I said, "Okay." To show how much of a deal this was, I didn't even take a camera with me. Wow. Right? We went over there and we chatted with him. We had a cup of tea together. And he's really, he was really nice. He's so humble, very quiet guy, you know, very different to his stage persona. Mm -hmm. And I just think if you had a bit more courage, you would have taken a camera and just like, you know what I mean? It's just like, I was always so shy about. Anyway, alhamdulillah. Things are what they are. I mean, see, that, that's definitely something to uh, think about, you know, some kind of project with that. Uh, I want to do something. I mean, I'm kind of working, whenever I get a minute, I'm working on my old negatives. They're quite, you know, they're old. They're like 50 years old, more than 50 years old. There's so a they, great uh, uh, Ken Burns documentary on the Vietnam War. Uh huh. It, it's very long. It's like 10 episodes. Each one's like an hour and a half. I yeah, I've heard about it. I've never seen it. Yeah. I saw it during this last Ramadan. Okay. And it was really the only time I've actually understood Vietnam. I mean, what a colossal mess. But, it, but seeing that and understanding the war, I understand sort of where this movement, this cultural movement. Yeah, yeah. Of course, after World War II in Europe, but there's just a lot of other stuff, you know, racial issues. We're also aware of Vietnam. I mean, I talked about that in, in you know, the exhibition book, Searching for Light, you know, that we we were aware of what was happening in America and Cuba and all these things. It, it really made peace such a big issue. And I think we are at a similar point now, particularly with the youth, you know, and the, you know, they're leading the ecology movement and there's, you know, they just want a much simpler thing. This has gone on for too long. Look at the world and the state of the world. It can continue like this. And uh, so I think, it's it's a very similar time in some ways, and maybe the pandemic is part of the picture to make people just kind of reflect a little bit about what's what's yeah. happening and what we're doing. When the pandemic started, and, and I had to address my local community, I, I thought of this verb, verse in the Quran: "We'll have them taste the smaller punishment." rather than the bigger punishment, maybe yeah. they will come back. 
Yeah. And this whole, you know, quarantine, that's what I've been thinking about, you know, Allah's giving us an opportunity to come back, you know, to come back to our senses, to come back to morality, to come back to, you know, our true selves. And the music of, of your generation, you know, I, I, I love that music too, and it, it motivates me. I, I think it's speaking about that, but just in another, yeah. you know, using another mode of expression. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, these yeah, were the... As I, I would relate it to the, it's like the Jahiliya time, the poets of the Jahiliya time, because I said that, you know, at those times people look towards the poets for kind of trying to work out what's happening. And I think D Dylan was very instrumental in that. And then there were photographers that I really respect who documented Vietnam and Cambodia. And, you know, they feel, particularly Don McCullen, he feels like he never, achieved anything you know although he put himself at great risk and went into all these situations but i did say to him in a, in a letter that you, you think that you didn't achieve anything but you actually made people of my generation aware of actually what was going on there because without those photographers we would never have known what was really happening in those situations yeah that, that's true i mean uh, that's true that's that's true and I, that's actually in the documentary that's one of the things that they talk about heavily the power of, of the journalists and the photographers that were yes. by, you know, the famous picture of the you know the girl running naked you know being burned yes. by the and um, you know these things are very iconic uh, of the Absolutely. war and how ridiculous the war was and pointless yeah. and, and destruction. So yeah absolutely absolutely very very important and people need to uh, uh, really look at it and understand it. I think I felt for a long time the music kind of clouded over a lot of the other stuff, which is why I was kind of quite keen to do a project that included the culture and all these kind of ideas. And I did, I, I sort of approached it a little bit in this book and talked about, you know, some of the things that were started in the 60s, you know, even things like healthy eating and e ecology, you know, feminism, all these kind of ideas, peace movement, you know, all these things began then and then they kind of people kind of forgot about them a bit and then these ideas come back again when when people remember that they are important things to kind of uh, identify with so I, I do feel that that's kind of there is a lot of that going on at the moment so inshallah City. give peace a chance yes give peace a chance <laughs> Sidi, can you could you maybe close us out with you know maybe a, a thought or a piece of advice, uh, uh, you know something to, to leave us with? I mean, this yes, I just thought of something. So I was living, I lived and grew up in Notting Hill Gate, and uh, it was a fate. You know, it's when I first started doing photography, and. Um, um, so I was always wandering around with my camera in my hand, looking for stuff. And um, I'm going to find this shot. Ah, okay. So um, I was wandering around and there was a whole street that they, it was a kind of derelict area and they painted one whole street black, I think for, they were gonna make a film there. And someone had come along and graffitied on the wall. If you can see it, can you see it? Yeah. Can you read it? We teach all hearts to break. 
Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that kind of thing has stayed in my heart because it's like the essence of Sufism. Mm. It's it's kind of it's a very spiritual thing, you know. Like if you're a lover, you're gonna break your heart, you know, because this is like, yeah. Wow. So when I saw this, that's very powerful. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of stayed with me because it's that's it just anyway. It's it's a. Uh, the spiritual path is beautiful and amazing and uh, full of wonder, but it's a journey, you know, and you have to embark on it. And you have you to know, they say the path is Allah. He's not at the end of the path, he is Allah, you know. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's a very poetic and artistic way to end. I couldn't <laughs> have done it better, you know. Thank you so much. You uh, thank you. Enjoyed talking to you. We should talk more. It's really interesting. You've got interesting take on things, and uh, it's a uh, you know I, I I said to you I'm not very scholarly, but it's interesting to meet scholars that do think about you know they use their gift that they've been given to kind of help decipher because we need sco scholars to decipher the wisdom that's that's contained yeah. in. I mean, you know, the scholarly stuff, to be honest, is, is boring. It's, it's very dry and, you know, teaching Islamic law. I mean, I enjoy it, but it's, it's a dry thing. But I, I'm much more interested in, you know, what Islam produced in the past. Like, why are we the way we are today? Like, why, why yes. can't we build, like, things like Alhambra? Like, why haven't yes. Muslims in London built, you know, like a Muslim quarter of London that's just like... Yeah, yeah. I've always had dreams to do all these things, and it just it, it hasn't happened. But um, inshallah, well, the, the you uh, you know I meet a lot of young people; they're really inspiring, and uh, I'm very pleased that a lot of young people have bought meetings of mountains. And I think it's because you can read about the aulia, but when you actually see them and, and see their humanity, it, it's it's. Um, it's a different thing, you know. I think coming from India, I had an idea that they, they're very charismatic and they fly through the air on carpets and stuff. And then when you meet them, they're just so real and very human. And uh, I, I know you want to finish, but I, there was, um, I, I, I used to always go to the Peace Forum in Dubai, Abu Dhabi to take pictures because I love Sheikh Bin Bayer. And mm. I used to say to them, look, I just want to photograph Sheikh Bambay. I'm not really interested in anybody else. Because <laughs> I just, his face is so beautiful. And uh, and then they, they sent me an invite to, to attend it virtually. And I said, oh, would you want me to take pictures virtually as well? I'm, I'm, quite, I'm getting quite good at the screen grab. <laughs> but um, I listened to his talk. I don't know if you heard it. It was, it was the, I think it was, the, they call it the work frame or something for the, this year's conference. But he quoted us a hadith that I'd never heard. I'm sure you've heard it. I had never heard it before. And it's the analogy of that um, all of us in the world today are in a boat. The top compartment and the low compartment. Yeah, yeah. So you know this thing. I never heard that before, but it just was such a strong visual image for me. And it just, and the way he explained it in a very simple way about how you know the people were in the bottom want to bore a hole to get the water and it was just like such a an analogy on methyl for today where we're at that it just 
I, it stayed with me for days and and that's his his gift he is an incredible scholar and he was able to put that together that even i could get something really profound from it and i really yeah i mean that's a very important concept because a lot of times muslims they think that it's us and them yes and he I mean, made that not... very clear that we're on a shared journey yeah, this is this is the the, the the world's culture you know the, the, the things yeah. that we've been talking about rock and roll and poetry this is yeah. all of our we've inherited this culture it belongs yeah. to all of us the, the prophet he said you know that hikmah is the lost property of the believer if you find yeah. it it's yours if you find it in japan it's yours if you find it in rock and roll it's yours if you find yeah. it in art it's yours yeah so that's a very i find that very liberating yeah, me too. Because before I came to study Islam, you know, I was an actor in college and, and a singer, and and I, and I had at one point a very small time I wanted to become an opera singer, and I was in opera. <laughs> so I mean, you know, what's wrong with that? I mean, you know, Allah put those inclinations in me, uh, and I and I benefited from. I learned from them. Uh, you know, alhamdulillah, I didn't become a professional actor. And my parents were going to kill me when I told them that, but. I think that this idea that that the world's wisdom is is ours, yeah, uh, it's not like mine and yours, but it's all of us together. I find that very exactly. And we need one another to know the whole picture. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, inshallah, we can continue to inspire. You know, the, the next generation. I mean, my, my, I I think Islam is is beautiful, and as sure as you do as well, and. If we believe Islam is beautiful, it should make us beautiful. Yes, exactly. And that's why that quote that I, I, I read back to you, your own quote about being Islam, it's so, like, it touches me so much because I think that that's what we need to do. That's, that's yeah. the real work. Exactly. It's not about slogans and conferences, but we need to be that art of Islam, that beauty of Islam. Exactly. And everything exactly. else will follow. It's, 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 it's so important, really. I, I knew before, even before I became a Muslim, sometimes you would see somebody, you just stood out from the crowd, whose face was full of light. I didn't know what that was. What was it? You know, I didn't, I didn't understand what it was. All I knew was that that person had something that I was attracted to. Alhamdulillah. Well, keep, keep producing these books, Sidi. We, we need Inshallah. <laughs> we need it, it, yeah, it's kind of, uh, they're labors of love, but uh, I think it, if they help, inshallah. Well, Allah give you tawfiq, inshallah. I mean, inshallah. Again, thank you so much sincerely for, for your time. Pleasure. Do you ever come to London? Frequently. Oh, come on. I'll and give you a copy of the book. Call <laughs> me. Okay. Ne next, time. next time you come, yeah. Yeah, I, can, I mean, at this rate, probably won't be till the summer. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But when you come, come and see us, okay? I will definitely let you know. How far are you from the city? Uh, I'm at the end of the Metropolitan Line. Ah. It's about 35 minutes on the uh, underground. Okay, excellent. excellent. It's nice. It's green here. It's the furthest place that the underground goes to. They say the original directors that built the underground service lived out here. That's why they ran the <laughs> Metropolitan Line. Okay, that's good. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I was told anyway. Of course, then we have an appointment uh, to meet you. Yeah, yeah. Alhamdulillah. Good. Right. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. It was very pleasurable. Assalamualaikum. Take care. One more thing before you tune out.
To help me stay focused and manage all the things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Friday Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up.